Good evening, folks. Welcome to Radio XITN. Now we'll get to the heart of the manuscript, where more is at stake. The manuscript asks, suppose we compare different conceptual models of the world with one another. Would we discover a shared ground of being? Comparable meanings of human values that are common across cultures, across time? Or does comparison reveal significant differences among the models? Perhaps overwhelmingly different experiences of what reality is, different umwelts within the human species. Right, Fred. First, I want to pull together some things we've been discussing. I have essentially two points. First, the author entertains what might be called a proto-theory of human religiousness. The idea is based on treating a conceptual model as a coherent myth discussed in the last episode. Proto-theory suggests a certain similarity to prototype theory in cognitive science, where categories of conceptualizations are defined not by necessary and sufficient conditions every instance of a concept must possess, but by a prototypical member at the center of a class, other members of the class resembling it to varying degrees. It's a model of concept categories, in part based on Wittgenstein's notion of family resemblances, where entities are connected by series of overlapping similarities rather than just one common feature. For Wittgenstein, it supports our recognition of the plurality of uses of language. Each of the five conceptual models has its own one or two prototypical examples of a structurally similar coherent myth. By structural similarity is meant a similar set of premises about the nature of reality and the place of human life in it that defines the major existential problems or paradoxes religious dynamics attempt to address. Fertility against sterility, permanence and change, human freedom and divine authority, obligations of loyalty versus moral goodness, birth as a path to mortality. Details of myth may vary by cultures and historical periods within a conceptual model. Some mythic features may overlap with other conceptual models. For example, similar types of artifacts may be used to represent deified beings. Different cultures may use similar geographical formations, mountains, rivers, the sky or starry heavens to carry significant religious or cosmic meaning. Two aspects of each conceptual model lie at the heart of calling them religious myths. First, the myth is perceived as making transition points and crises of individual lives meaningful in relation to general human origins, crises, and endings. 
the global myth connects with real conditions of individual human experience. Second, the myth engages the participation of the believer in an overwhelming way. Cognitively, it makes sense out of chaos as a way to structure one's life and moral behavior, but especially affectively, it impacts the hearer's deepest emotions and aesthetic sensibilities. Think of how participating in a funerary ritual can make one feel differently about a past relationship. The other major point is that for each conceptual model, the author proposes to assess how it is in a position to answer two questions put to it based on modes of analysis we discussed in the first several episodes. A, in what way does the conceptual model expressed in the myth constitute an umwelt? How does the myth reveal experience of a fundamental perception of the world based on the nature of the living entity's own cognitive and sensory apparatus that determine how it understands the world, its structure, its limits? And B, what are the possibilities of phenomena? In what way do the phenomena of that worldview become a shared language capable of addressing and solving problems of the deepest paradoxes of human existence and meaning? The latter suggests the author's interesting interpretation of religious phenomena as forms of problem solving. So a bit more about the theory. The author speaks of coming to think of human religiousness as participation in a temporally constrained mythic world of being and meaning. The events of human life are related to finding a ground of their meaning, the attempt to understand what kind of being human being is. Temporally constrained means that a mythic world necessarily evolves over time. Therefore, its validity is limited to a historically finite temporal period. Ground of being is the claim that human awareness includes a realm of primitive reality, a world greater than an individual's immediate experience, but a world to which the individual is fundamentally connected through its own phenomenal experience. It is primitive in that sense. The idea is similar to how William James speaks of human values and aesthetic judgments arising at the precognitive fringes of consciousness before filters of perceptual prioritization, say, distinguishing foreground from background, and of logic and current empirical knowledge become fully operative. In this region of consciousness, human perception has a primitive awareness of transcendent values awakened and experienced especially through the affections. This is the sense of being emotionally moved by some phenomenal experience. It may be the warmth of a certain glance from someone you care for. A beautiful but painful emotion engendered late afternoon by the salmon-colored sky behind the bare trees in winter. The physical sensation on your hand as you stroke your dog's fur. The greater reality to which human religiousness connects may be expressed through mythic accounts of various types of entities and the import of their specific actions. Transhuman beings, some treated as deities worthy of allegiance, even worship. 
uncontrolled powers of nature, perhaps personified as having hybrid human-like form. Spiritual or quasi-spiritual entities, such as ancestors capable of specific actions unavailable to humans, but relevant to a wide range of human social life and familial life. Temporally existing corporate entities in which the individual may reside or to which the individual has allegiance, its community, state, ethnic or cultural entities, social institutions, and voluntary associations. Institutional religions make their own varied uses of these categories of entities. Magical properties may be ascribed to actual historical figures. Some transhuman or hybrid entities are simply conjured or poetically imagined. Political use might tightly couple a world-maintaining sky deity to the cultural structure of human kinship as when Pharaoh was God's deputy on earth. But the author insists religious myths must also relate to ordinary human experience. Common elements of secular life have religious significance as well as those that transcend it. So with emphasis on human religiousness, one may find mythic dimensions in scientific explanations of how biological life came to exist cosmological theories of the history of physical reality and the types of entities found in it, narratives of the origin of social practices and moral norms that define a person's behavior throughout life, accounts of how political authority and economic power ought to be distributed in the world as in uses of wild nature by human communities within it. Each myth understands the basic structure and limits of the world on its own terms, based on its ability to respond to irresolvable paradoxes of human existence. Some impenetrable problems remain relatively permanent or overlap from one temporally constrained period to the next. Others are time-dependent, bound to the longevity of a religious culture or institution. The strength of a myth's religious claim consists in its power of generating participatory experience. How strongly a myth impacts an individual's cognitive and affective dimensions may result in visibly changed social behavior. It may not. Participation may simply mean that an individual perceives this mythic world as coherent and emotionally valid. Commitment to its truth for all time and history may not be possible or necessary if elements of religious freedom are built into the myth. However, the mythic world must be perceived as sufficiently coherent, conceptually meaningful, to override reductionistic explanations of human behavior. Treating behavior as reducible to the capabilities and limitations of physical bodies and their neural networks, for example, or as a manifestation of the process of evolution interacting with an unstable environment. A coherent myth, while being temporally bound, is typically global. It may also be local. A trans-historical global myth might be big history, 
that is, include a mythic cosmogony of the origins of the universe, but it at least operates from a perspective far longer than an individual's lifetime perhaps from time beginning with creation of the individual's nation-state and values on which it was founded, like the founding of Rome on April 21st, 753 BCE, by two fraternal demigods, for example. To be relevant to individual human experience, a global myth must, at some point, address human dilemmas of an abiding nature, the question of whether humans are fundamentally good or flawed, for example, whether as a whole we're essentially good, only at times driven to horrible actions, or as St. Augustine claimed, we are a massa pacata. Humanity is a single lump, fundamentally flawed, primordial sinful in some irredeemable way for which only a Messiah, a divine savior, could atone. Aspects of myth may appear synthetically applied to human nature, for example, by theological explanations of how human sinfulness gets transmitted from the primordial fall of a first human in an Edenic state of purity to the present, introducing an artificial mechanism like concupiscence and a lustful heating of the procreative seed. It is not unusual, in order to solve such dilemmas, that the internal dynamics of the myth only create further problems. In this example, one of theodicy. By conjoining the being of a beneficent human savior to an omnipotent creator. Jesus, after all, was not created. Jesus was the creator, eternally consubstantial with the creator. Colossians 1, verse 16. Jesus is eternal, just as God is eternal, and all things were created by him and through him. Jesus is both redeemer and creator. In the end, to work in the realm of human will, it may be as if the divine will is itself driven to comparable contradictoriness, or at least being sufficiently compromised to address the ambivalence of human nature. A local myth has history limited to encompass the life and immediate prehistory of an individual. The content of the myth may reside entirely within the realm of ordinary historical experience, although perhaps seen under extraordinary circumstances. The mythic narrative of the soldier who fought on Edson's Ridge, Guadalcanal, for example. Primordial intrusion and unjustified attack the threat of global domination by foreign force, the threat to human freedom, and the subsequent need for a response in which one's own body might be willingly sacrificed. Problems for a local myth may be those that arise from the perspectives of later history. Political liaisons may have changed. Japan no longer an enemy but an ally. Social values may have changed. Wars not necessarily based on theories of dominant races. Previously unrevealed facts may be uncovered, massacres or enslavements of humans. There is also localization of global myths residing from the increasing interchange of religious institutions with one another. 
Myths once perceived as global are now seen as temporally constrained or bound to history of particular faith traditions. These are inconsistencies among revelations which lead to the denials of exclusive truth claims made by one tradition against another, as Jews have rejected revelatory claims to Jesus as Savior, for example. But inconsistencies may lie strictly within a single corpus of revelation, ambivalent localization from within, in effect. For example, in ancient Canaan, in the Ugarit Kurta cycle, in Tablet 1, Column 3, Udom, as a gift of El, a present from the father of humanity, could reference both King Pabal of Udom and Kurta, who was seeking a wife. El, in a dream divination, had ordered Kurta to march against Udom and lay waste its surroundings, but to hold off sending arrows onto the city itself. So El appears to both capriciously play one offspring against the other, but also serve as the great negotiator between offspring. So much for El's consistent nature. Which side are you on? Or in Islam, if the Quran is the direct unmediated record of divine revelation preserved in heaven, Surah 85, 21, how can there be no compulsion in religion, Surah 2, 256, yet grievous penalty to those who reject faith, Surah 9, 3? Or how can disbelievers be both able, Surah 6, 22, and forbidden, Surah 77, 34, to speak on Quiamah, the day of judgment? Or for Christians, not only inconsistencies among the canonical Gospels, but those within a single Gospel. In the Gospel of Luke, for example, is God to be found by those who seek him? Seek and ye shall find, chapter 11, 9, or not. Many will seek to enter in and shall not be able, chapter 13, 24. Inconsistencies within Revelation set in motion mixed messages and ambiguity about what is ultimately meaningful. And so they impact what allows a religious culture to survive. Further comment about Umwelt is also needed. The scientific concept of Umwelt was meant to apply to different species of living things, to emphasize that the perception of reality, say, of bats is necessarily different from that of badgers or of barnacles or bedbugs because each of these beings has quite different cognitive and sensory apparatus. So when the idea is applied to a single human species, the comparison must be analogical. Although there might be cases in which the term could literally apply, imagine some human beings capable of seeing light in the infrared range. Now, science textbooks say we can't see infrared light. Like X-rays and radio waves, infrared light waves are outside the visual spectrum. But humans can be made to see infrared light with adaptive devices. And in fact, researchers have found that under certain conditions, the unaided retina can itself sense infrared light. 
So human physiology is not fixed for all time. Human cognitive and sensory capabilities are evolving properties. The point is that in the mythic world created by a particular religious conceptual model, one reality is made to look different from that of other worlds. An imagery of the local physical world may impact religious dynamics reflecting that world. For example, the nomad's perception of a desert world of intensely contrasting light and darkness, heat and cold, whiteness and blackness in the environment of southern Iran and northern India's Thar region. Are these experienced phenomena reflected in Zoroastrianism's radical dualism of eternally competing forces of Ahura Mazda and Ankhramhenyu? Different worlds in many cases, but not all. Different from other religious worlds, to be sure, and generally different from the world of ordinary experience. But sometimes simply making ordinary experience look utterly different by employing a conceptual model of a world containing some idea of God different from other conceptual models. The effect is as if concepts of God were being looked at by people who simply saw reality differently because they were so constructed to see it one way and not another, as if they had different or modified sensory apparatus through which they saw reality. That is the function of a coherent religious myth. So James, the author proposes five distinguishable conceptual models of the world based on different criteria for being and meaning. Each model therefore gives a quite different picture of the concept of God and the religious myth built from it. I understand there is nothing magical about five. There could be as many ways of thinking about the idea of God as there are individuals to consider it. Five simply fits within the range of, say, four to seven differentia people appear able to hold in mind at any given time for making comparisons. Now, James, you're going to first present these five models briefly, somewhat schematically. Then we'll explore each one in greater comparative detail. But first, each model will be given in the order the author has it in the manuscript. Each is also identified by this kind of airport code shorthand used from time to time. But after you present the five models, I understand you want to investigate them in a different order than in the manuscript because you feel it makes more sense conceptually and possibly also historically since one model seems to arise earlier for human beings. Yes, that's right, Fred. We're going to describe each model with enough detail to distinguish one from another, but then we're going to look at each one far more deeply and there we'll change the order a bit. However, rather than cover the entire presentation at this time, I suggest we pause here and consider this episode eight simply to be five conceptual models, part one. Then we will cover the five conceptual models themselves altogether in episode nine, five conceptual models, part two. That sounds good to me, James. No point in overwhelming the listener. There's a lot of descriptive material and data, but part two will be coming online very shortly.